2: you're listening to the archaeology podcast network you're listening to tea break time travel where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past It's time for our fifth expedition back in time in this episode of Tea Break Time Travel. I'm your host, Matilda Zeebrecht, and today's tea is a roast almond tea. Finally, not a fruity tea. I seem to only be drinking fruity teas here. listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. I'm your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and joining me is David Ian Howe, who I guess you just got in because we've uh, had to reschedule this a few times, but do you have a hot beverage there? Do you usually drink hot beverages?
1: I do, actually. I don't normally drink them, but today I was like, I'm going to need some coffee. And yeah, now I have a- It's fate. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But, But so you're more a coffee guy than a tea guy then?
1: Actually, I'm more of a tea guy than coffee, but any any amount of caffeine will just make me stay up for two days. So I like, rarely drink it, but this morning was particularly like, okay, I'm going to need some coffee. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair.
2: Yeah, no, I'm yeah. always interested in like seeing the difference between... people are either like solid coffee drinkers or solid tea drinkers but then you also have the black tea drinkers and the herbal are you uh if you don't like caffeine then are you more of a herbal herbal teas
1: yeah like i like the cool like eccentric fruity teas and stuff that you get at the store and
2: they're perfect right i never used to know that that kind of tea existed and then at some point my brother-in-law bought me some and it opened up a whole new world to me it's amazing so yeah
1: yeah, like passion fruit tea Mm -hmm. i'll go with that every day
2: yeah, right? It's really nice. But uh, I haven't had passion fruit. My one yesterday was kiwi and kiwi and strawberry and that was also very nice. That, was nice oh, that sounds you. good. Oh, very nice. Anyway, cool. Okay. But good coffee that also works. Uh, hopefully this you don't fall asleep too much. Uh, hopefully this is an interesting enough conversation that you uh, don't need more coffee. <laughs> no, you're um, good. But uh yes, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And uh for those of you who don't know who you are, I doubt it because They'll probably know you far more than they know me at this point. But just in case, (laughs) how did you get into archaeology? You are sort of an archaeologist by trade, I understand it. So how did that all start? How did the interest start? Was it always there? Or were you one of these ones who came in later to to the understanding of the past?
1: I was always like I was into bugs as a kid and like picking up frogs and like zoology and Pokemon. And I would like name everything and take pictures of all the animals that I saw and, like, document them, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but when I was, like, I guess mostly a kid, like, in school, I was really interested in history, and I really was interested in, like, the Spanish colonization of the Americas, Mm -hmm. just, like, that that period of time was so fascinating to me, or I guess exploration in general, Mm -hmm. and then I realized when I took an anthropology class that what I was more interested in was, like, the culture clash between you know, the Aztec and the Maya and mm-hmm. the Spaniards and like, like how a Stone Age civilization meets like a gunpowder age civilization and how those interactions work. So in anthropology, I was like, oh, wow. it's So you explore human culture. And then then I, from there, I got into like stone tools in my anthropology classes. And then I went on a few digs and then that kind of evolved into the dog stuff that I do now
2: because
1: mm. I also found the dog stuff fascinating. But yeah, stone tools is like my bread and butter.
2: Yeah, and so that's nicer. Then now you can combine the love of sort of animals and the zoo zoo side, zoological side, with the archaeology, which it works out. When you say name, by the way, do you mean like name is in like Harry Tom, or do you mean is in like the scientific name? Yeah,
1: like the scientific name. Like I would look up like what kind of frog it was, mm-hmm. or. Uh, this was like when it was still AOL really slow internet.
2: <laughs> yeah. I had I made I was obsessed with well, I still kind of am with primates when I was younger. I wanted to become a primatologist. And nice. I made like the whole family tree of the whole primate family. I did this massive poster of it and learned all the scientific names. And I used to know them all, but now I've forgotten everything. Do you still remember it once?
1: Primates, I remember all the apes for sure.
2: Oh you even knew all what? of them. Oh. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like I like apes as well. But yeah, just random little things around the yard not all of them but i know like you know coyote and deer and like all that
2: yeah yeah uh, no nice cool and yeah. so you mentioned though that you got into uh, stone tools so i mean that's quite different and even i guess the culture clash is sort of very different from the because i have to say i got into archaeology because i was interested in zoology and then i was interested in kind of hu- human evolution and the kind of more i guess yeah you call it scientific anthropology or, or that side of things rather than necessarily the culture side, um, if that makes sense. But then your interest indeed was in more sort of cultural interactions. And I mean, Aztec, I have to admit, I don't really know much about American South American archaeology, but how late were the Aztecs and and the Spanish invasion or the colonization?
1: Yeah. So the Maya were about like a 1000 AD, a little Hmm. after that. So like I compared to like the Crusades era. Hmm. And then the Aztec kind of rose to power in like the late 1500 or no like the early 1500s to like late 1500s and that's like right when Cortez got there
2: okay which is always so interesting because like you say they were a stone age society but it's it's funny to think that something that we think and they had such complex society and such complex tools but I still come from a European background and you think stone age neolithic okay yeah so we're thinking you know 5000 BC or something but no they were really recent which is uh yeah,
1: And I tell a lot of people to just think of it as like a giant Neolithic city that just never ended. Like yeah. in Europe, they kind of ended in whatever 10,000, 8,000 years ago. And then now it's like, or I guess like 5,000 years ago. But yeah, it's, um, it's pretty fascinating.
2: Yeah, no, I'm always amazed. Of- like also how, uh, what was it? There was a thing I was thinking uh, heard the other day and it was talking about like when Stonehenge was built and then looking at the Empires that were happening in the Middle East at that time, and it's just so funny that at the same time period, in different parts of the world, you have so many different things going on. Yeah. In in terms of like, yeah, I hate to use the word development because that makes it sound like it's a sort of evolution thing, but in terms of how complex societies are and, and all of that. Kind of
1: yeah, the the spread of technology is kind of how I see it.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. No, yeah. interesting. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> random, random, uh, uh, off cut of this. Out of curiosity, uh, I always ask this to everyone, if you could travel back in time to a time period, be it 1500, be it 5000 BC, where would you go and why?
1: Oof, I didn't expect that one.
2: (laughs) It is called tea Um, break time travel.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. I mean, my cop-out answer would be either at the height of the Roman Empire, either in Rome or Jerusalem, uh, just to see all of those cultures coming through and like hear all the different languages yeah. I mean, you'd see like Jesus going on too, but like that's just, <laughs> it's a big event at the time, but like just how big the empire was then and all that would be cool. Yeah. That maybe being in Tenochtitlan uh, would have been kind of sick. And I guess the third answer would be just to live in any hunter gatherer society, pre-Neolithic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: either in Europe or Asia or the Americas, just to see what that was like. Cause it was probably so vastly different than we imagine.
2: I'm always intrigued at how different it would be indeed, like how wrong we are basically about yeah. everything it would be interesting. I love how you mentioned like, you know, oh, the whole Jesus thing going on. I wouldn't have even thought of that. But of course, that would be such a political like travel um, to yeah. go back to, yeah, like zero BC in the Roman period or something. Um, yeah, and- it
1: just to... Everything going on there would have been so neat.
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, that's cool. I like as well how pretty much everyone has answered this question similar to you to say, not necessarily like, oh, I'd have gone back to this like amazing event. It would have been, oh, I'll go back and just see how people were living and what life was like. And yeah, like you say, what languages were spoken. And I like that. I think that that is, yeah, a, a nice way to think about the past indeed as something that's just happening and going on and constant. And you just Yeah. Have
1: to, uh, yeah. Because like with um, Clovis here, like our... I guess Mesolithic, Paleolithic culture in the Americas, like we only have their tools. Mm-hmm. I guess we can get into this later too, but we don't know anything about like their like toys or their instruments or like what their clothing may have looked like. It could have been like extremely elaborate, but all we have is the tools. So like it's just to the mind's imagination, like what they had.
2: Yeah. Which, well, I didn't realize that they didn't even have any like clothing or anything preserved.
1: There's some beads and there's like, I think some elk teeth. That's a pretty... Throughout American history, there's just elk teeth dresses everywhere, but yeah, like they use them to make jinglers. Okay. But yeah, nothing like as elaborate as, you know, Chauvet or Go that they left us.
2: Yeah, no, that's really, and I like how you mentioned toys as well. I have to, because I've relatively recently had a baby and it's funny before that, I must admit, I never really thought much about, you know, toys or kind of, I, I tried to think about the archeology span of childhood, but it's such a, a complicated subject to get into But then since having this and I just noticed, yeah, she just, you know, everything becomes a toy and she picks up all these things and how she interacts with the world. And it really makes me think like, wow, yeah, I really wonder what these, how many of these objects, which we see as like ritual figurine things or something were just, you know, someone needed to give a child something to play with for a while.
1: Yeah. Like the Vogelherd horse was just like a chew toy or something. Yeah.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah, um, It'd be really interesting to see. That would be good. Like to do some sort of micro, micro analysis of it and see if it had been, what had been chewed because people must've been teething. I mean, they were teething. Oh, that's it's, a,
1: that's a good question. Uh, Mackenzie Corey, the archaeologist here in the States, he does specifically the archaeology of childhood. I'm sure you'd probably love talking to him.
2: <gasps> yeah. Oh, Mackenzie um, Corey. I'm writing that name down. I haven't heard of him.
1: Yeah, he's great. Just such fascinating stuff. Like, I never thought about, like, he finds on the plains, like, little dollhouses, or oh. not dollhouses, but, like, there's a, a wigwam or a teepee ring of stones that is clearly, like, the main dwelling but then there's a small one near it which was probably a child's little place to hang out and just looking for things like that
2: yeah yeah well and there's so many things as well that I didn't really think about even like yeah I'd bring it up but like breastfeeding and you really need clothes that will allow easy access and then you're looking at quite a lot of these replicas of this women's clothing in the past and you're thinking well that wouldn't work like you wouldn't (laughs) you know which I mean sure maybe people weren't feeding all the time but still like you would think that design would allow that you know if that makes sense uh, yeah of, anyway anyway cool uh, as i say thank you for joining me on my tea break and before we look at uh, the, the themed object for today We're going to journey back again in time to around 64,000 years to the site of Subudu Cave in South Africa. So I'm going to set the scene. The rugged rocks of the cliff tower over the camp, which is spread throughout the cave entrance. Beds made from grasses and reeds are dotted around the edge of the open space. The remains of the fire from last night still smoke in the hearth, and nearby sits a figure bent over their task, examining the edge of a small stone point. Pressure is applied, a tiny flake pops off, a satisfied grunt of approval, and the point is placed on a small pile next to the fireplace. Nearby, a collection of straight wooden sticks and some lumps of resin wait patiently for the next stage of the process. On the other side of the cave, another figure is carefully cutting up a large chunk of leg from the last hunt, but it won't be long until they need to venture out again, just as soon as the next batch is ready. So today we are looking at arrowheads or bow and arrow technology, I guess, in general, and stone tools as a kind of expansion of that. And we'll get into the details soon. But first of all, I always like to look at the most asked questions on the internet, courtesy of Google search Autofill. So I basically typed in are arrows or were arrows and saw what came up. So the first one is, are arrows reusable? Which I guess makes sense because speaking as someone who's not very good with bow and arrow technology, you quite often shoot it and it ends up in the middle of nowhere. But Mm -hmm. how how often were arrows reused or how often do you think it would have been likely that something like that was happening?
1: I love that uh, introduction, by the way. That's great. (laughs) I would say, yeah, for the most part, they're reusable. I mean, that's most composite tools are designed to be reusable, like atlatls and arrows for sure. And, and like, this is, I think throughout world culture and history, people would like put a specific color on their arrow, like specific, you know, fletching or feather. Really? Yeah. Or like a specific point size or style, you know, Uh, so they know they got the shot. And like when you go look for your arrow, it's like, oh, I got it.
2: Okay. Um, oh, that's, I did not know that at all. And that's seen kind of everywhere?
1: For the most part. Yeah, I know. It's like a lot of like military history. I think it's like mentioned in the, the Iliad or the Odyssey, one wow. of them, maybe in Gilgamesh. I can't remember, but yeah, it's just like, you just put a specific paint on your arrow. So, you know, it was yours. Um, in which case that to me means like, you, of course they'd be reusing them. Yeah. Because to fletch an arrow takes a, a quite a long time. You can probably mass produce them really quick, especially like in the Neolithic or, Mm -hmm. you know, Middle Ages when you had specialized labor like that. But around a fire as a hunter gatherer, like it takes probably quite a bit of time uh, to make them good and right. So you'd want them to be reusable.
2: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I like this idea of it being, do you think indeed it was the whole kind of, oh, I got the kill? Or was it more, uh, this is mine, I made it? Like how, how did they feel about personal property that's never something i really considered do you have any views on that
1: it probably completely varies as a spectrum like you probably had one guy who was like no that was mine (laughs) Uh, but you probably had more people that were like and you were all very skilled at it and like you wanted to know like okay i got the i got the killing blow Hmm. or like i missed and it was just so you could get better or just in general just to collect data like oh okay that one's mine i did it. (laughs) bragging rights (laughs)
2: <laughs> I can also just imagine a, like, hunter-gatherer, you know, Mesolithic scientist there with his little clipboard being like, all ah, right, yes, so this time I was off by 5% of the uh, projectile potential. <laughs> Next time, I need to do this more. That'll
1: me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but no, but it's always, in like, because also I remember back in the day when I was first doing my undergrad, and one of the first things you learn about hunter-gatherer society is, you know, it's very egalitarian and everything's shared and all of this style of thing. But, I, yeah, indeed, kind of ownership of objects or knowing what was yours on differentiating like that that must have been happening i assume
1: yeah in a lot of like modern hunter-gatherer cultures or even not even like hunter-gatherer just hunters in general Mm. it's still like a tradition that like if you got the shot like you get the first like prime cut Mm. or Mm. in like some cultures like you get to eat the you know testicles or the heart or the liver Mm. depending on like and it's like a ritual thing
2: uh, okay, yeah, who who has the, the prestige or whatever to get the, the fancy bit of meat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I oh, don't know, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary.
0: Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: Okay, question number two was, were arrows effective? Which by this, I guess, this refers to this idea. I think a lot of people find it very strange that, you know, you can use a stone axe to cut down a tree, or you can, you know, do all these things. And I guess using stone-tipped arrows for example, or even bone-tipped arrows in in earlier periods as well to hunt large beasts or everything, everyone's always like, no, but that can't have been possible. I mean, were they effective?
1: Yeah. There's even a study that says you can use, I was with the Mistbusters, actually. Um, You can use a wooden arrow that's just sharpened Mm -hmm. to shoot something and penetrate just as deep. Okay. However, an arrowhead cuts more Mm. and allows for more bleeding and gets in more effectively, whereas like a wooden one would just seal the whole and it doesn't bleed out as well, but you can mm-hmm. shoot something. So, for a long time, I guarantee people were doing that and then decided to put blades on the end of them. And yes, they are quite effective. And I just think of it as this too like, I have my whole life I've done archery and I've had like kids' bows or like practice bows and stuff. And like, you still are very much told, do not point this at anybody, kind of hmm. thing. And mm-hmm. like, even if it was a tiny little draw weight bow, like it can still do damage, especially if it hit someone's eye hmm. or, you know, not a very hard part of the body. So going up against a bison, you got to be really good at it. But yeah, if there's six of you shooting something and you all have a sharp end on something that is traveling at a relatively high velocity, it's going to do some damage. Mm.
2: I think I saw you'd recently participated in uh, some sort of study that was looking indeed at the velocity of it. Was it at you were looking at?
1: Yeah. Yeah. A paper came out saying that it was probably impossible for paleo-Indians to have hunted mammoths with mm. their atlatl technology, which I normally don't try to go into biased or be biased on studies, but I find that kind of absurd. Mm. <laughs> so we yeah. like uh, tested that out and like on the third throws, it it already like proved their paper wrong. So that's kind of cool.
2: Awesome. Yeah, Um, Oh, cool. Will that also be released as a paper uh, in the future?
1: uh, Yeah, Devin's working on it right now. And yeah, I'm working on some pictures and data for it.
2: Oh, nice. Sounds good. So indeed, you mentioned that potentially, initially, it was more sort of sharpened bits of wood or or bone or anything. And then they were attaching blades. So the next question is, how were arrowheads attached to arrows?
1: Yeah, the easiest way would be you just cut a groove and just kind of push it in there until it sticks. Mm-hmm. But that's not the most effective. What you want to do is then add sinew or pitch or both. Mm-hmm. And pine pitch is just tree sap, either rabbit or turtle poop, and um, charcoal.
2: <laughs> just those two? or
1: <laughs> For whatever reason, turtle poop is like the Maya and the Aztec specifically wrote about how it's like the most adhesive binding substance.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> interesting. It must be the, the seaweed or something. I don't yeah, really know I what turtles eat. You-
2: environment interesting
1: or I guess they weren't eating sea turtles they're probably eating like box turtles but yeah rabbit dung works too and you you melt that all together and it makes like a very very sticky substance and you heat it up kind of like wax and you put it around and you essentially just hot glue the arrowhead mm-hmm. into the wood and then you wrap sinew which is usually deer backstrap mm-hmm. and you chew on it so it gets wet and like kind of stringy And then you wrap it around the arrow and when all of that dries, it like shrinks up and it, it does not move.
2: Okay. And you've, have you, I assume you've tried this. sounds like you have experience with it.
1: Yes. I tried cooking pine pitch in my kitchen in grad school and my roommate was not thrilled about it. With with
2: turtle poop or?
1: Rabbit poop that I found outside. Oh, that it was with poop. Yeah. Cause I found rabbit poop and I was like, oh, I'm going to make pitch.
2: (laughs) I like how that's indeed one of the first things that, you know, <laughs> thinks of the it's I also anyone I- listening who's thinking of sharing like a flat or something with an archaeologist, you know, <laughs> <Ding>. <laughs> have a think about the potential issues. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I cooked it in a, uh, like I cut a beer can in half too. That was
2: my favorite part. <laughs> Just cooked it in that. Modern experimental archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> Using authentic methods. <laughs> <laughs> I actually cooked a, I had a a seal skull that I needed to deflesh and I just cooked it in my casserole pot on my stove. And at some point the, oh, the smell was horrendous. (laughs) That
1: is like just a Tuesday for us. And most people would be (laughs) like, what? But
2: yeah, I can actually remember uh, speaking about atlatls and projectiles. I can remember the first time I learned to use an atlatl was in my like experimental archaeology class at uni. And we just went into the local park and someone had done a, like a cutout of a mammoth and we had to throw it at them. And at the time I was like, this is awesome. This is really cool. But I didn't really think anything of it. And looking back, I'm like, we were throwing out lattles in like a park where people were walking their dogs and <laughs> they must've been looking at us like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah. uh, and going back home indeed to my friend who was doing law. And, you know, she was saying, Oh, we had this seminar about, you know, this case. And blah, blah. I was like, Oh, we, we were throwing spears in the
1: park. <laughs> <laughs> That's, um, Something I find so interesting as well is like stone tools in general, but atlatls for sure are arguably older than the bow and arrow.
2: Are they? I was going to ask that later. Yeah. So, okay. And we find evidence of of atlatls because my, well, because my thoughts were because usually atlatls are made out of something organic, right? So I didn't think they would survive as well.
1: Like when you walk by the park and you see people throwing atlatls or like... (laughs) When I show students atlatls or things like that, like it's just such a foreign technology to them because yeah. they never see them or haven't heard of them. But like, they're a probably 100,000-year-old technology that like we've just forgotten about, that everyone used. Yeah. And when we got to, or not we, like when the Europeans arrived in the Americas, we called it the atlatl, which is how you say atlatl. Because that was the Nahuatl or the Aztec word for it,
2: oh, okay.
1: which is such an ironic thing to me because we definitely have atlatls in ancient Spain. Really? And we don't have a word for them because they just completely fell out of use with the bow.
2: Because the last question uh, that came up about uh, on the Google search was, are arrowheads worth money? Which I interpreted as meaning like archaeological arrowheads that are found on the ground. And I want to get into this a bit more later as well. But I'm curious whether indeed in, especially like in North America, is it quite common for arrowheads to be like ancient arrowheads or, you know, archaeological arrowheads to be just sold as general objects?
1: Unfortunately, yes. Okay. Arrowheads are a huge and this is where it's like putting things into socially constructed categories always gets confusing because they're usually at darts or knives. Oh, okay. But how do we know there's nothing attached to it? Anyway, that's my whole thesis. But
2: um, <laughs> that's good because I have lots of questions about that.
1: <laughs> awesome. But yeah, you'll always see at a flea market someone who's like genuine arrowheads and like <laughs> they have like something to sell or Oftentimes, though, it's somebody who's napped them and they sell them as like genuine, quote, Mm. Indian era heads, unquote. And like, like, you know, my mom would be like, oh, I just found this guy. He had a bunch of artifacts and like would buy them for me. She didn't know any better, but like (laughs) I meant well because I was like pretending to be legless in the backyard all the time. But yes, there is. Apparently, there's a very large black market artifact trade here. I don't really tap into it or know, but. It's definitely a thing and it, it gets sticky because I know probably you're in Germany right now, right? Yes, yeah. I'm not sure how the public land thing works there.
2: But Does here, it, I don't know either here. I know in the UK, but yeah.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, the UK, it's quite similar. But mm. here you have federal land, state land, and then private land.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And federal land could either be the forest service because we just have vast swaths of forests that mm-hmm. still are like wild. <laughs> BLM land is just big open desert usually. And then state parks and stuff like that. And national parks are all federal Mm -hmm. or state parks or state federal parks or national parks and stuff. Anyway, on those lands, you are legally not allowed to collect any antiquities because it is private land and is protected by indigenous laws. Mm -hmm. But like the state of Texas, as big as it is, is mostly private land, not public land. So people can own like acres of land and they have just thousands of arrowheads on their property and they'll collect them all and put them into like a little coffee tin and like, or display them on their mantles and stuff and show people. And it, yeah, it creates this sticky cultural situation. Cause as an anthropologist, you want to be objective and like, you're in their house, you want to respect their customs. And you're like, I know for a fact, that's just like, you looted that out of a, yeah. a huge site, <laughs> but it's their land. It's their property they do own it and like it just it hurts me to know like the all that context is lost
2: exactly well and you think so many i mean how many also objects i can remember in the uk there's these i don't know if you know them the like carved stone balls um from scotland oh yeah yeah. they're just these really like enigmatic objects no one knows what they were used for and at some point one was sold for like a ridiculous amount of money by and it was bought by like the museum and then suddenly all these other ones appeared like seeing as it was then sold for that much money which that you know you're then like oh, how many other objects are just that we don't know about are just sitting somewhere that could you know provide the vital like you could maybe someone has a full set of clothes from the clovis people you know and they're just <laughs> keeping it on their shelf or something
1: that is a great answer or question actually because <laughs> If you're going through the back catalog, you'll get to an episode of Ruins where we interview a guy from Brian Schroeder Mm -hmm. uh, from Texas. And he is the state archaeologist and he's dealing with a woman who has a mummy that they found on her property. (gasps) Her grandparents found it. And at this point, she built like a little fake cave for it in her house and like the remains stay in that. And she feels that she is responsible for taking care of this thing because her grandfather gave it to her. Mm. But, like, the indigenous people are like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, that's ours. But, like, it's this weird cultural thing where, like, this woman genuinely believes, like, she's doing a good thing. And, like, if she gave it to a museum, it would just sit in a box and, like, it wouldn't be as loved. And it's just such a fascinating conversation, but also just so sad.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is true. I mean, I guess in that case, it's, it's even more tricky because like you say, they have the indigenous group who are involved in, and then it gets even more complicated with sort of the the heritage in that respect. But like, I also wonder sometimes about, you know, these objects that are like put in museums. I mean, I have so many replicas of things and it's so fun to, you know, play with them and things. And there's all these studies I know that have been done about like whether audiences know if it's a replica or not, you know, like if, if museums were to just have replicas of things, in order to share the knowledge, because I mean that's how museums started, right? Was kind of to share all these different cultures with other people, and you know all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, why does it have to be the original ones? Why can't those go to, indeed, like you say, people who will love them? You know, in, or, or, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's compl- sticky. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> Although saying that, so we've sort of diverged now from the from the Google questions a little bit. But I did want to talk about this a little bit because I imagine that something like arrowheads are probably one of the commonest. Objects found all over the place, really. Although, as you say, whether or not they're arrowheads is another question. We'll get to that in a second. But mm-hmm. I mean, if, for example, someone were to find an arrowhead and is listening now and thinking, "But I have these. I have my my tin on the mantelpiece. You know, what am I supposed to do with them? Then what what are they supposed to do?" I think
1: in uh, definitely in England or I guess the UK, like metal metalhead uh, what is it called metal detecting is a big thing and you're looking for like coins and Mm -hmm. you know because you get so much history over there (laughs) people do that here but our coins only go back you know 400 years yes (laughs) and like not really until about 1800s do they really pick up in the record but we our coins are arrowheads here and like it's a family tradition kind of like easter egg hunting to just go out on land and like look for arrowheads or like farmers will like till the land like with a you know, just pull up the plowed zone and then arrowheads will just come out or like after rain, That's
0: some of them so will scary. just wash
1: out. <laughs> yeah. And I never grew, I mean, I grew up in like the New York city area, so I never like, it was just concrete where I lived. No, but, you never um, plowed
2: the pavement the <laughs> looking for <through> arrowheads? <laughs> weird, weird. Tried.
1: <laughs> yeah. The uh, like, it's just such a tradition and like a lot of people get into archaeology because of that. So <laughs> to me, it's not the worst thing. Because it does get people interested in the past. However, if it's on public land and private land, or public land, which people still do collect it on, that's like a legitimate, like, oof. But then there's the Mm -hmm. other issue too. This is my friend's thesis. Private land is usually the good land that has good tillable soil, that's Mm -hmm. near water, that is like pristine looking. And that's where the sites would be because people wanted that same spot. So they on private land have so much archaeology that they're just like plowing through that.
2: do So I know that in the UK, for example, there's the treasure trove that then you can hand it in, but unless it's like an artifact of extreme cultural import or something, you usually get it back. Or you'll get the financial reimbursement for it kind of thing, depending on what it is. Um, The exact details I don't know. So anyone listening from the UK, don't like (laughs) storm me with other things being like, I didn't get paid for my little thing that I found. But I think that's the the general process.
1: Some people try to... Bring them to museums, and they're like, "I found this on my property," and it's like you're in Tennessee, and you found an obsidian projectile point. I doubt it. <laughs> you bought it at a flea market, or you flint it, and you're trying to pull a fast. Right. I've had that done so many times. Okay, because they want you to buy it. Mm. But like most people have this idea that museums just buy antiquities, and it's like no, because <laughs> we <we're> just full <laughs> of money in archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of like, working as a collections manager for years, like a lot of it comes from. Someone's family, who like their grandfather died or their father died, and they have this big collection at the estate sale, and they're like, "I don't know what to do with it," so they just drop it off at a museum or the mm-hmm. university, mm-hmm. and you get these big donated collections that have zero context, but they have such beautiful, beautiful projectile points and like oh. beads and pipes and stuff. One time we found a mandible, and that was a that was an issue. Oh, wow, <laughs> but, a
2: human yeah, yeah, or a maxilla. Oh. Sorry. Oh gosh. But, yeah. <laughs> just went no no we don't want this one (laughs) take this one back
1: yeah can you can you show me where
2: you found (laughs) this yeah oh god yeah no okay okay but that's interesting because yeah indeed I also get a lot of people who say like oh but you know I found this uh, important thing or there was even the yeah (laughs) sure I'm gonna say it I thought I wouldn't say this but uh, I don't know if you saw the Mammoth Graveyard it's like a new David Attenborough show that came out recently about this big site no in the UK it's very cool you should definitely check it out and basically this couple had found like a neanderthal what was it i can't i think it was a hand axe neanderthal hand axe and uh but they didn't realize what it was until at some point they had like showed it to someone or something but they'd had it in their possession for ages because they like hunt for fossils and they find you know artifacts and all this kind of stuff and like they used it to cut their wedding cake and and this kind of thing and I'm there as a microware analyst being like oh <laughs> <laughs> no no the trace yeah. is a like this and it's uh, yeah it's one of those things I'm always saying to people like if you find something maybe you can keep it but first take like you know nice pictures of it and show it to someone who's an expert in it, so that they know how to deal with it but yeah
1: yeah uh, wow uh, yeah. that's so interesting too because if it's cutting a cake it's got dairy in it so it would register right? as cow fat when you do the analysis like, right
2: it. like can you imagine <laughs> So I mean, yeah, they got to keep the thing, but it was just yeah when they were talking about it, and they were very sweet, and they were so proud, and you know, they were really involved with the excavation and everything. So it led to some really cool research project being done. But still, Good. I was there just cringing, going like, "Oh, <laughs> no, this isn't what you do. You don't use it to cut the wedding cake, anyway." Oh, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> um, so. Moving a bit more into your, uh, now we're nearly at the end of the episode, moving to your level of expertise, uh, your your region of expertise in this. So indeed you did arrowhead technology, if, if I'm correct. And you already mentioned a little bit this idea and I find that really interesting, but you know, how do we know it's actually from an arrow? Because I guess usually indeed you just have the arrowhead. You don't really have the rest of the arrow in, apart from in very special cases. So what are the, yeah, the criteria or how, how do we deal with that issue?
1: So <laughs> that's, the gist of my thesis—I mean, there's a lot of factors that went into it—but yes, it like you find so many points that like people are just like, "Oh, this is an arrowhead," but then you also have ones that are clearly atlatl darts. They're too big to be fired from arrows, and there's been a lot of studies that like tried to like to statistically or ethnographically trace like what the cutoff point for an arrowhead versus an atlatl is. And much like anything in anthropology, it is a <laughs> very fluid spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's tough to say if they're very small. Like we can say, okay, that's an arrowhead. Like it's not going to work on the end of an atlatl. But even arrowheads, like you can make them big. And, and when high. you say
2: big, what kind of size do you mean?
1: Like I'm not talking like a Neolithic like sword or like you know big long. <laughs> no. Like, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. Or like a like a chopper like the Neanderthal axe you were yeah. talking about, but definitely like. You know, a, a palm-sized arrowhead is usually an atlatl dart. Um okay, so And that one that's like big. a fingertip size is definitely an arrowhead to me. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, my, my thesis like getting too into it was just like shooting a spectrum of sizes of arrowheads or projectile points from a bow and seeing how well they performed mm-hmm. and wanting to know like, okay, there's probably one that's just too big to work. And like the one that's too big to work, we can then say is like, all right, this is anything past that is an arrowhead size or an little dart size. Mm-hmm. And what I found was like, you can shoot all sizes <laughs> with a bow ah. pretty accurately and they still penetrate. So it's literally who's to say at this point, like you can't tell. But I still like have a firm belief that like if it is as small as your finger, maybe from like your palm down to your finger size, I would say it is an arrowhead. But like Clovis people and Paleo-Indian people used very large points. So we can definitely say those were arrowheads.
2: Okay. And I mean, what makes an arrowhead? Like what are the defining characteristics of an arrowhead? Are there any or is that also really varied?
1: If it, I'm trying to think if there's a, if it fits, it ships for arrowheads, but if it, <laughs> it hits, it. Sticks. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, If it works, it works. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Okay. That'll do. That'll do. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So there are no, because I I very briefly looked things up and I've never really looked into stone technology that much and definitely not arrowheads. But I mean, it seems that there's ones with like the shoulders. There's ones that are just points. There's ones that are like heart shaped. And is that, variation dependent on like time period or region or use or a bit of everything
1: simple question but it's such a complex answer <laughs> that's what i do um,
2: yeah yeah, and it,
1: <laughs> i like it uh, i'm also loving this show by the way thank you <laughs> i think of it like like our iphones are our our bi-faces today like we always have some kind of bi-face on us that's such um, a
2: nice idea
1: yeah, and it's the exact size of a functioning bi yeah. normally that you can fit in your pocket. And like before, it was pocket knives or you know whatever, but yeah. we still have those as well. But your phone, everyone has a different colored iPhone. They add a different case to it, or they have like a Google Pixel. They have a <laughs> Huawei phone. Huawei, wow, I've never heard of that, but yes, okay. Um, I think it's the Chinese company.
2: Ah, right, yeah, I'm Chinese just very Apple.
1: Bad with modern technology, but- is not my <laughs> <laughs> You're good. <laughs> But yeah, everyone's is so varied and different. And right now, I think I have the iPhone was it 13 that they're on now. Who fancy it. The, <laughs> the three cameras on the back. And uh- like right now, though, people are still using ones that have the two cameras on the back. And I was hanging out with a friend the other day who had a Google Pixel, which is this completely different phone. Mm-hmm. If you were to look at those archaeologically in the future, you'd be like, OK, these are both social media byfaces. but like what? <laughs> which one? Is like more effective. Which one, like, is it just style? Is it function? Mm-hmm. So, to get back to your arrowhead question, think about the phones we had 30 years ago, the <laughs> big corded phones that you had to hold on the kitchen. Like, those look vastly different than an iPhone, but yeah. they both serve the same function. Yeah. Uh, and it's only 30 years' time difference. And like, there's so many different colors and variations of them. So, When you're looking at, let's say, archaic Tennessee 8,000 years ago, where I'm sitting right now, they used a specific kind of point, but also it could vary. Like they didn't put notches in it. Maybe they put notches in it. Overall, they put the same notches in it because it's the same, like your father's teaching you how to do it or your mother's teaching you Mm -hmm. how to do it and you're going to make it the same way. But everyone puts their own spin on it or they might want a different color. And then we pick it up and we're like, oh, well, the people here definitely use this. This is their technology for a thousand years. And it's, yeah, well, like, is it? And then like, ah, it's just so intriguing to me because it all comes down to personal preference, but Mm -hmm. then you got to get into the spiritual, like animistic side of it. It's like, okay, maybe it had to be this specific way because that's like, there was a, a ritual thing to it. Like making the notches was like blessing the hunt or something like we, we have no idea.
2: Yeah. I love that idea though. Indeed that it's almost like a fashion thing like the, you know the, having the different arrowheads like someone will be going like oh you have the you know you have the new iphone 13 oh you have the new like double notched style or whatever like you you go go that route like i i really wonder now whether people were sort of you know oh, oh he's so old school he has the you know <laughs> the double whatever biface or something instead of this like that's I don't know. I'm now trying to think if I've read any studies on that. I I guess there have been ones in sort of later periods, but in terms of like hunter gatherer societies, I'm trying to think if I've read anything about that. Do you know of any, any studies about that or that style?
1: I mean, it it goes back to what I said earlier, like with marking, which arrow is yours. Like Mm. you may have made a different projectile point to say that it's yours. And it's definitely group identification because like we find today, the only thing that preserves is the stone really.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And like, even if you were Say I was hunting here in Nashville 8,000 years ago, somebody who lived, let's say, 7,999 years ago <laughs> will find an arrowhead in the ground and be like, oh, this is not mine. Someone was here before me uh-huh. and they use their points this way. So it's like a you can see somebody else was there. and But essentially like okay, the Cherokee once walked through here because this is their point. And like Mm. another tribe would have been like, okay, so this is Cherokee territory. And I guarantee that was part of it because it's the only thing that preserves still.
2: Yeah. So like identification, but also kind of personal style, but also a little bit of like taboo and ritual, ritual, I use that in inverted commas, but yeah, um, as well. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. I love that idea indeed that, yeah, we have all these categorizations of everything of all the Different materials and like all the different arrowhead points and stuff, but in the end, maybe those are also completely off. They were used for different; those styles are because of different things or because of different reasons.
1: Yeah, a really cool example would be uh, Cumberland points. They are a Paleo Indian point that are very specific to the Cumberland River, which borders Tennessee and Kentucky, and they're only found here. And they're like the most complex stone tool I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. They have like a beautiful flute running up the whole point, and they're like Got like a, they look like a fish. Uh, it's really, it's really neat. Uh, very cool. thin fish, and it's like such a risky point to make because when you take that flute off, you could just snap it in half. And Ooh. it takes a long time to get there, but it's a very regionally distinct Paleo Indian point that only appears here. And it's like, is it fish shaped because it was along the river? Probably not. They just uh-huh. thought it was functional, but also it's like paleo indians moved across the continent so fast the ones that settled in the tennessee area hunting here stayed there long enough that they developed their own specific style Hmm. and it might have just been one person who was like bro check this out (laughs) and it changed that way or it was like a specific like very spiritual thing and i we have no idea that's cool. Oh,
2: which you know, that's it. the end of the day, I guess. That's what I—I <laughs> re- I feel really sorry for people listening to this podcast because a lot of my guests have said very similar things. In like, well, but at the end of the day, who knows? And it's like, yep, cool. That's the message of archaeology, I guess. It's like we will never yeah. really
1: know. <laughs> and like, I, I always want to be as, as as respectful of indigenous belief as possible. Mm. But on a level like, we're all humans and we're all primates and we do very similar things. Mm-hmm. And like, drawing, like, you know, phallic objects into cave art and stuff like that <laughs> is always going to be funny. Right. It's just like, I think it was all over Rome, it was all over and people would like talk about, I mean, not to get into this on the podcast, but you know, like, somebody wrote graffiti that was just clearly a joke. Um, yeah. And like, people have always done that. And whether or not there was a spiritual purpose to making a point a specific way, I think humans have always just been like, I border always more on the bro check this out like Mm -hmm. a new invention or it's just like a well I'm gonna make mine this way because people are just persnickety that way yeah and not persnickety how would I say like idiosyncratic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that probably is what starts trends and that's literally how tiktok works right now like somebody (laughs) makes a joke and that becomes a trending sound it's so fascinating to see
2: huh so you're saying arrowheads are basically uh hunt together a paleo window and tiktok yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. I like those. I like all the analogies we're making today in the, with modern technology. <laughs> it's my uh, job. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you briefly mentioned as well the idea of arrowheads as like composite technologies. And obviously, we mainly just find the arrowheads. What would be, like, I mean, the, you, des- you described already how to make it, but do you think then, I mean, this is always a, an issue, I guess, when looking at any kind of technology in the past, that idea of kind of skill and understanding. I mean, could anyone have made Arrowheads or would it have been a specific job, do you think? Not job, but, like, a couple of different people would have been better at it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's complicated it's not complicated, right? There's overall... The general trend of human society, it seems that men do most of the hunting, but they also do a lot of gathering. Whereas like, at least in like the hunter gatherer research that we learned in in grad school, women tend to do more gathering because it's more stable and you can carry your children with it. You don't have to bring them three weeks on a hunt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like in that sense, in that traditional sense, we look at the past as like, oh, they were just shirtless male hunters throwing things at mammoths. And it's like, actually, no, like you know women were making traps they were tanning all the hides they were doing all this stuff while the guys were like hopefully coming back 3 weeks later with a bison <laughs> <laughs> so it's like in my opinion like women did probably most of the work of survival just like keeping everything in check um doing I all mean, that and
2: still are really that, i mean <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> yeah so they probably were making points, too. Like, they were probably flint napping in their downtime. And, like, maybe when the men got back, they napped or it was only a male thing. But in my opinion, working with Stone Tools and, like, meeting, I guess, professional cavemen now is my, <laughs> my new group I'm in. At the end of the day, everybody has to know how to make fire. Everybody has to know how to flint nap or else you're going to die. Yeah. Because if you are stranded somewhere, you need to know how to make a cutting implement. Even if it's just a flake, you don't need to make a, a Clovis point or like a Neolithic hand axe. Or what is it, a Danish flint knife? Those things mm-hmm. are really cool. Mm-hmm, Everybody needs to know how to do it. And I think in every society, men and women both did it.
2: I was talking about also the, the idea of sort of composite technology. Because I guess also that idea if they're taking like arrows out with them on a hunt, for example, if they're gone for a couple of weeks and you break an arrow or something and you need to kind of whip one up, I guess you would have to, if you're a hunter, you have to also be able to make the tools, I suppose.
1: Yeah. And like rifling is the technical term, but replaceable parts and which is i think uh, think about why it's called a rifle um <laughs> but oh. um yeah like uh like an atlatl is a socketed composite tool so like you have the whole atlatl but you drill a hole in the end where you can put a four shaft that has the point attached to it into it so like it just pops in mm-hmm. and you can switch out the point sizes depending on what you're hunting or when like I always think of it this way too. Like you could throw your atlatl into something with a rope on it and then yank the rope out and the socket comes out with the point still stuck in the animal. So Mm -hmm. you can, you can reel it back. Mm -hmm. So I think, Mobile hunter gatherers probably had some kind of bandolier, the bunch of those points on them, like around their chest, like Chewbacca or (laughs) either had them in like, I mean, that's just, I would love to see that, but at least in a bag on their side. Hmm. And if you lost those or they broke, you had to be able to make one really quickly. And people usually did carry a biface and maybe like in a little backpack or a pouch with them, like two big, good pieces of um, like a spalled piece of chert or flint mm-hmm. to make something out of expediently. Mm. So everybody needed to know how to do that, I think.
2: Yeah. No, I I just love this. It's so funny. I, I mean, I really love looking at technology in the past. I'm an artifact analyst and everything, but talking to you today, I now really have this vision of people, you know, like you say, it's like the mobile phone. It's like this, it's like having a rifle. It's like, and you just, it's, it gives such a different impression of of kind of how people saw their objects. Cause I feel like a lot of people in the modern day see sort of stone age so to speak um tools or sort of stone stone technology as something that was a lot more yeah i don't know how to explain it like less every day if that makes sense because to us it's so cool and it's so different but yeah it's it i do not yeah this is probably an unrelated thing but it's just to me i'm just sort of now thinking about it now like you say with the bandolier and everything like it's just such a cool idea that it's like oh yeah cool look check out my new this axe that i made today or you know this this arrow i made today like it gives such a different impression to me at least maybe that's just me
1: (laughs) yeah and once I learned that thing about like not necessarily the division of labor but like just thinking about how much stuff like was done at camp like you have to make those hide tanning racks you have to have like vats to boil, like soak the skins in the tannins to Mm -hmm. make them Um rabbit traps you got to make fire pits you got to make fires like wood storage somewhere like uh, just so many logistical things at camp Mm -hmm. that involves so much technology and then like your dwellings depending on where you are your beds I think probably things were a lot of hammocks at most times if it was Mm -hmm. a wooded area and like Everything that's in your room right now or in your house, there was some version of that in the past in some way, depending mm-hmm. on where you lived, because like it's all simple technologies. Like I'm looking at a lamp right now. They had lamps.
2: Yeah. No, no, no. I'm
1: at my computer right now, which they clearly didn't have, but they had <laughs> sitting around a fire talking and learning. Yeah. yeah. And I'm looking at my cricket machine right now that I used to cut stencils, but like oh. I guess somebody would have been flint napping or making art or something like that and it's just it's all there and I'm going on a tangent but just it just makes my mind wander like what little cool tools and stuff they had that just did not survive the record
2: yeah or sitting on someone's you know shelf somewhere and uh, we just haven't seen them yet.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah uh, no it's and uh, I, I guess the last point uh to that would be like and I think I already said it but we usually get an impression of the past especially with like paintings and you know movies mm-hmm. that it is shirtless male carnivorous hunters mm-hmm. and that's all prehistory was but it's like it's so much more than that and like yeah there's just endless stuff like i i, I think more about the complex like tools and stuff they're using around camp and like the stories are telling and dances and like were they were they deer cult were they wolf cult like that they believe they had kinship with bison. just so much stuff
2: yeah or even even less kind of spiritual thing like we spoke already about children and stuff and i think that's also something right that hasn't often been considered in archaeology and it's a growing field now but you know once anyone who has a child or who's who's got family with a child knows that they very quickly become the kind of center of you know your world and it's yeah so it's but it's a thing that is not often considered, I think, when looking as well at, at technology or at, or at interactions in the past too.
1: Sure. And like with the infant mortality rate and how much, I think it was like 50% of women died in childbirth or something yeah. like that until, you know, 1980. Yeah,
2: <laughs> so yeah.
1: like, or I'm not sure when, but probably pre like Civil War, but or let's say 1800s for you guys over there. But yeah, like Childhood must have been such a cherished and like revered thing because mm-hmm. you had to make sure those children survived because there was a very high chance they wouldn't. So like, I'm sure children had a very high status in society or not high status, but they were very Importance, much- I guess.
2: Yeah. Football. Yes.
1: They had, yeah. the emphasis was on them. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. No, it's a, yeah, it's a fascinating subject. I feel like I need one to get more into it, but uh, anyway, cool. Um, I had uh, one more question just about archery actually. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you uh, have done archery a lot uh, in your time. So in terms of the actual like technique required to do, I mean, I imagine that bows are also something that don't really survive in the archaeological record. Or do we have some nice examples of, uh, of kind of paleo-Indian or, or other areas of the world ancient, shall we say, bows?
1: Yes, a bow. Uh, there's been a few found in like bogs. Uh, in like the earliest bow we have is in Germany, in Stelmore, Germany, in a bog About eleven thousand years old, I think, Mm -hmm. and then especially out west, we find a lot here, like preserved in caves. The string is still not attached, obviously, but like it's it's a bow for sure.
2: Okay, Um, yeah, that's cool. And does that can you can you imply about like the 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 different techniques that would have been used, etc., as well?
1: For, for, archery for, or? for archery? For
2: archery, because I'm just trying to think of, I mean, you know, like the, the Mongolian horse riding archery style is then very different from like the English longbow oh. style and, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, bows definitely get smaller when the horse is introduced here or okay. reintroduced because you can't fire like an English longbow from the back mm-hmm. of a horse. It has to be a small <laughs> handheld thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we can imply that they, you can you can tell based on the length and the thickness of the wood, like what poundage like it had like when you pulled back on it like and how heavy like what game it was probably hunting and stuff
2: oh that's very cool that you can tell that much and you mentioned very briefly the idea of sort of skill i guess in archery and 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 that side of thing i mean how 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 is the research about that i don't i know nothing about that field
1: yeah so my friend bridget Grund or dr bridget grund did her dissertation on uh researching atlatl uh or atlatlists like around the world like at Mm -hmm. the world atlatl championship and Archery championships. Oh yeah, that's Uh, awesome. I didn't know that existed. World Atlatl Association. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty cool. Very cool. And people are really good. It's it's wild. Wow. But she found with her research, like ethnographic, archaeological, and modern ethnographic, it is far easier to learn to use an atlatl, like just to pick it up and throw it, Mm -hmm. than it is a bow because a bow is kind of a complex. Like it's very hard to figure out at first, Mm -hmm. especially a, a traditional bow. But it takes a lot longer to get good with an atlatl, even though it's easy to learn. Hmm. But it's very much more quicker, like vastly quicker to get good with a bow and arrow once you figure out the technology. Yeah. And like, um, she did like a bunch of like gender studies, like who uses what bow or, you know, technology more. I can't remember what the answers were on that. But yeah, it it it's just once the bow came about it replaced the atlatl everywhere because even though it's harder to learn it's just way more efficient hmm. interesting
2: no that's really cool and I, I guess i'm trying to think i mean i'm just thinking of like the you know those dog ball throwing things because i guess that's the, the, probably oh, the, the, closest, the closest we have to an atlatl these days um but uh in in that sort of sense but yeah i suppose it is more indeed like throwing so i guess if you can throw then you can sort of use an atlatl but yeah like improving your throwing technique takes time I guess
1: it does and we can see in the record I know we're gonna wrap up soon but like with mungo man in Australia you can see that he had atlatl elbow which is like yeah. an awesome osif- yeah an ossification that happens on your I believe your radius not your humerus like in the joint area on your elbow that like shows that there's micro traumas to it from throwing the like a pitcher in baseball like they throw out their elbows a lot
2: yeah yeah
1: and you can see that even though there were no atlatls or points found with him, you can tell that he was throwing an atlatl about 60,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago.
2: Oh, it's so cool. Oh, yeah. so nice to get little snapshots into the lives of people.
1: <laughs> and in such interesting ways too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, really cool. Well, uh, unfortunately, I think we should probably wrap this up indeed. We've had quite a long tea break so far. But thank you very, very much for joining me, and uh, I hope that you enjoyed it. I definitely learned a lot um, about uh, Arrowhead. So yeah, thank you.
1: I just want to say I've been on a lot of podcasts, and this is by far one of my top favorite ones I've been on. You're very good at it.
2: <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. It's really sweet. Yeah, this
1: was like really fun, and it blew by. <laughs>
2: <laughs> cool. Thank you. So uh, yeah, if anyone uh, wants to find out more about David's work, I guess your thesis, is it somewhere available online for people to read?
1: I've been in the process of publishing it for years, but (laughs) I made a YouTube video on it.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. So you did.
1: At Lattles Arrows and Paleo Indians is the title. It's like one of my most recent videos. It's the whole thesis. You don't need to read it; just oh, watch it. Perfect.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll put the link uh, in the in the show notes on the podcast homepage. I'll also try to put other links to things that we've mentioned today and general information on arrowheads or uh, projectile technology. So I hope you all enjoyed our journey today, and see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel.
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster.
2: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.